This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from a busy day today and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde mulls over Lady Moan's PPE Farago, car crash interview and fight with the PM. Victoria Mary Clark on the excess, addiction and powerful love that bound her and her husband, Shane McGowan, together. And 40 years of the silent treatment, Anita Chowdhury explores the shame and pain of being shut out by loved ones. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, after years of denial around their part in the provision of COVID PPE, Michelle Moan and her husband Doug are finally coming clean. For everyone enraged by the scandal who can't quite find the words, Marina Hyde has a few that come to mind. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Draw near, readers, for these are testing times for bouncy, blow-dried, plague profiteer Michelle Moan and her husband-slash-support garment Doug Barrowman. And also, perhaps, for the Conservative figures who ennobled her ladyship then helped her and Doug fast-track their way into providing £203 million of Covid PPE, from which they cleared at least £65 million in profit, even though much of the PPE was, allegedly, unusable. Michelle lied repeatedly and for years about her involvement to The Guardian, which broke the story, and on Sunday insisted, That's not a crime. PP MedPro and the couple are being investigated by the National Crime Agency, which, and I'm honestly just going on the title here, does maybe have something to do with crime. The Moan Barrowmans obviously deny everything. But look, let's just get into technical terms for a second. Michelle is five foot nine inches of pure chaos, and watching Rishi Sunak whinnying feebly about taking all these things incredibly seriously tease up the spectacle of the Prime Minister 
and a number of other drippy male politicians further incensing this Category 5 force of nature who will lash out all the way down on her well-earned fall from grace. Is that as good as taxpayers getting their money back? No, but I'll watch. Before we proceed, though, a recap. Can it really be only 11 years since Michelle was granting a mesmerisingly messy interview to the Sunday Times in which she wailed rhetorically, Why did I want to be Michelle Morn? Why did I want to start all these businesses? Why can I never be satisfied with what I've got? Yes, yes, I do believe it can. Can it really be only six years since Moan and Barrowman were granting their first joint interview to Hello magazine, standing in formal way in front of their Isle of Man McMansion, a Ferrari parked with gossamer insouciance just behind them, as if to say, well, as if to say, greetings, shitheads, did we mention we own a Ferrari? Again, it can. Readers of various outlets have since been invited inside the property, where decorative flourishes include a paved drive, sorry, but no, and an amphitheatre, actually hysterical. I feel like I'm in a fairy tale, Michelle told the publication, a beautiful dream I don't ever want to wake up from. Three years ago, as a belated second wedding present, she gifted Doug a gelding. I bet she did. And so to Moan and Barrowman's absolute disaster class of an interview with the BBC's Laura Koonsberg last Sunday, which came out not long after a YouTube documentary that turned out to have been paid for by Barrowman's firm, much to the retrospective surprise and distaste of several of the experts featured therein. Choice cuts? Too many to mention. There's a reason why I live in the Isle of Man, Barrowman explained to Koonsberg. I don't want anyone in the press to know of any business activity or anything that I get engaged in. Hmm. On the basis of the current horror show, Doug is almost as skilled at this as he is at sourcing acceptable PPE. Anyway, the Conservative fight back. On Monday, former Covid-era health minister Lord Bethel, one of the few people even less qualified to be in the House of Lords than Michelle, given he inherited his title, posted a screenshot of a message from Moan dated the 4th of October 2020. In this, she referred to we rather than we when talking about PPE MedPro. Not sure that's enough to let the government play the innocent. Then again, Bethel's gambit means so much more from someone who previously claimed to have lost his phone in early 2021, then revised that to say he had the phone but it was defective, then revised that to say it had been given to a family member, most recently alighting on the position that he'd deleted Covid contracts messages for space, and telling the Today programme that important decisions happened via the red box system and not via phones on WhatsApp. Still, Thanks for dialing in again, Lord Brains. The summer after winning the PPE contract, Michelle posted a picture of herself abroad on a newly purchased yacht, the Lady M, accompanied by the observation, Business isn't easy, but it is rewarding. Counterpoint, is it possible that business is sometimes way too easy? 
So many people in this country have looked at what has emerged about the way vastly lucrative COVID contracts were awarded in the panic of a deadly pandemic and thought, who knew it was actually so easy if only you were shameless and grasping enough? Who knew that as long as you had a hotline to the people at the top and just a phone number for some factory, you could set yourself up as a PPE provider, having never worked in the space before, and clear millions upon millions of pounds of profits for a load of unusable crap that might end up getting fly-tipped next to new forest nature reserves and the like. The government is always saying it wants to talk about things that matter to people, yet it simply will not talk in public and apologetically about the grotesque profiteering that happened during Covid. Please be aware that every time you see a Conservative MP lying that they had a great day on the doorstep in their constituency, what they will in fact have had is a day when people mention this issue with varying degrees of fury. The complete failure to reckon with it in any meaningful way is eroding trust in politics and political processes by the hour. None of which is to be unrealistic about the situation the country found itself in during the Covid pandemic. Of course, it was a mad scramble to get something, anything, to protect the very people trying to care for the sick and save their lives. Of course, the process was imperfect. That is understood by most people. What can't be understood and should never be understood in a nation that retains any level of self-respect is why ordinary people are somehow supposed to be forelock-tuggingly grateful to those who were already multi-millionaires and, in the case of the serial tax avoider Barrowman, reportedly a billionaire, for helping in this way. What absolute rubbish. If these white knights really were so altruistic, then they'd have waived the profits in the interests of civic duty instead of rinsing the public purse beyond all imagining for equipment that often could not even be used. I can't believe it even needs to be said out loud. But if you made £65 million of pure profit for helping during the most acute national crisis, then you didn't help. You helped yourself. That was a PPE Farago, a car crash interview and a fight with the PM. Lady Moan has her foot on the gas, hasn't she? By Marina Hyde. Read by Colleen Prendergast. And for more acerbic analysis from our opinion team, I really recommend you check out our sister podcast, Today in Focus's very funny episode from Wednesday, featuring John Crater's review of the political year. He tells Nasheen Iqbal about the moments that amused and horrified him in 2023. Just search wherever you get your podcasts. Next, Shane McGowan and Victoria Mary Clark spent more than 40 years together until his death last month. Here, she talks to Tim Jones about the excess and addiction, splits and reunions, and the powerful love that bound them together. Read by Clara Hart. It might seem silly to ask Victoria Mary Clark how she's doing, When we speak, it's barely two weeks since her husband, the Pogues frontman and musical icon Shane McGowan, died at the age of 65. They'd known each other for more than 40 years and been together for most of that time. But as it turns out, my question is not so daft. 
I've actually been doing fine because I feel like he's still here, she says. Especially when I'm sitting in his chair or looking at his picture, I feel that he's communicating with me. I can tell him stuff and I can feel him watching me and being very much with me. Clark is 57, a journalist and author whose 2001 biography of her partner, A Drink with Shane McGowan, gave him the space to recount his life in a boo-sodden, wildly inconsistent style. It's probably the closest most of us could ever have got to being shacked up in a bar with him, and that comes from the intimacy between them. What they had, she says, was more than just romance. It was a soul connection. Few musicians received the outpouring of love that McGowan got when news of his death broke. His punk take on traditional Irish music documented the seedier side of life, the drunkards and down and outs that he himself was drawn to. Nobody could accuse McGowan of not living what he wrote about, and it was this authenticity that attracted people. His funeral procession attracted crowds and mass sing-alongs in the street, while the ceremony was filled with laughter and applause. I've never been to one like it, says Clark, still a bit shocked. Usually they're downbeat, but there was so much joy, so much exuberance, and the love was so extreme that it kind of swamped any of the other stuff. You could say it was just a shame that the man who would have enjoyed it the most couldn't be there, but Clark believes he was. Shane loved getting high when he was alive, she says, which is something of an understatement. And I think the ultimate high for him would have been to ascend and meet Jesus and really get off on that cosmic space. That would have been the eternal buzz that he was always looking for in life. And he actually got it. Clark was 16 when she first met McGowan in a North London pub in the early 80s. The story goes that McGowan demanded she buy fellow Pogue member Spider Stacy a pint, as it was his birthday, to which she told him to fuck off. And he did fuck off, to the bar. But we stayed watching each other. I was watching him, and he was watching me. She started going to Pogue's gigs. Back then, she remembers McGowan as the capable one, the guy who rounded up the band picked them off pub tables and helped get them in shape to appear on stage. What impressed her most about these young punks was the lack of hesitancy they had, the absolute certainty that they were the real deal. Clark had grown up in West Cork, where traditional Irish music was treated with reverence and respect. Here it was being soaked in whiskey and doused with flames. Young guys who looked cool just didn't play this kind of music she says. It would be like seeing a bunch of young guys in hoodies playing opera. Clark, who had recently arrived in London and had a job selling vintage clothes in Camden Market, found she fitted into the Pogues' entourage easily. They were like a family, meeting up after work each day in the Devonshire Arms pub in Camden. That was our living room, and the mum and dad were the owners of the pub, she says. They'd keep an eye on you, take messages for you. In January 1986, on Clark's 20th birthday, someone told McGowan to give her a kiss, so he did. From that moment on, Clark says she was all in, with a lifestyle that was simultaneously thrilling and terrifying. 
During the Pogues' glory years, there would be drinking, smoking, screaming, snorting, fighting, much of which Clark happily joined in with. When it got too much, she would attempt to meditate while on their tour bus. A real challenge, she says. Not as easy as doing it in a monastery or a cave. A yoga mat on a Pogues tour bus paints an unusual picture. But Clark says McGowan himself was into Zen Buddhism when they met and happily devoured the Tao Te Ching and the writings of the philosophical entertainer Alan Watts. He was communicating with dragons and alien beings. We both had a very strong ethereal life. We were kind of space cadets together. Clark readily admits she wanted to change McGowan, to make him calmer and more respectable. He lived in a grotty flat full of ashtrays and burger wrappers, and while she enjoyed the rock and roll lifestyle, she sometimes wished they could be normal. She soon realised this was impossible. I'd organise a dinner party, she says, but it would end up being on the roof and somebody would fall off, or my dad would turn up and try to get off with Sinead O'Connor. Amid the chaos, McGowan would be a sweetheart, she says. A sensitive soul, far removed from the intimidating impression many people had of him. He was always buying her flowers or telling her how lucky he was to be with someone he had considered unattainable. And despite his drink problems, he was driven and endlessly creative. He'd be constantly thinking of words and needing something to write them on. It could be a receipt, your bank statement, your diary... You might go to a restaurant and he'd be writing all over the napkins and asking for more napkins. Often, she admits, she just could not see what he was seeing. It would sound really boring to me, the same couple of chords over and over again for six hours, and some of his lyrics seemed quite cheesy. I thought Rainy Night in Soho was really cheesy at first. It was only when I heard the finished thing that it made sense. A Rainy Night in Soho is famously a song with a double meaning. McGowan is clearly singing about the love of his life. But is it Clark he's addressing or alcohol? Actually, she says, it was Frank Sinatra. He wrote it for Frank because he wanted him to sing it. And possibly the Soho that he had in mind could be the one in New York. Other songs, though, were clearly addressed to Clark. And not always in a flattering way she says with a laugh. He wrote a song called That Woman's Got Me Drinking. That was pretty mean. He definitely had a way of using songs to get back at you. He could also use them to be extremely romantic. The song Victoria might reference was the fling that Clark had with Van Morrison while the couple were on one of their separations. Victoria left me in opium euphoria with a fat monk singing Gloria but it still ends on a romantic note. Someday I'll put my pipe aside and hit the road to find my girl with green eyes. Clark says there are other songs about her too that went unrecorded. I guess at some point we will be doing a book of his unpublished stuff because there are quite a lot of unpublished songs. When Clark and McGowan first got together, she says, they never argued. But as his substance abuse increased, she couldn't help trying to tame him. He would do crazy things like take 100 tabs of acid in a day, then jump out of the window of a moving taxi, or paint himself blue. And he would quite often set fire to things 
he set fire to hotel rooms that we stayed in while we were in them because of the acid. We were living very much on the edge of some kind of actual destruction. There were times where she would find McGowan in bed with groupies. I would be absolutely furious and I would punch him and run out and say, right, that's it, I'm never coming back. But then I'd get my own flat and I just wouldn't be able to stay away. I would always come back and I think he just knew that. Some of the wild stories she remembers with a smile now, such as the time in Los Angeles when McGowan had taken heroin, crack and crystal meth, then proceeded to jump on someone's exercise bike and start pedalling like crazy. I thought, he's going to have a heart attack on an exercise bike. Which, to be fair, is not how anyone would have expected McGowan to die. As the 90s drew to an end, however, McGowan's songwriting became subsumed under the weight of his addictions and the couple's living arrangements became untenable. Clark half admired their boho existence on a run-down London council estate and half couldn't believe that things had come to this. One day, someone overdosed and died on their living room floor. Oh, there's plenty of that kind of stuff that wouldn't have been the only one, she says breezily. Plenty of people dying all the time. There seemed to be a bit of an inevitability about that. And Shane always seemed to be the only one who was destined to survive. We all thought, well, Shane will outlive everybody. During this time, Clark succumbed to her own struggles with drugs and alcohol. And unlike McGowan, she knew she was masking what she saw as the failures of her own life. He could write and sing and perform and his work was immediately appreciated, she says. He was always successful, whereas I was the opposite. I was writing, I was drawing, I was designing stuff, but nobody was interested. I would write a book and think, this time I'll crack it. But it would always be, sorry, not for us. And I'd just pile up rejection letters. McGowan would have none of it. He always told me to believe in myself, that I was really talented, a genius, and it did help, she says. Because I thought, if someone like him liked my stuff, what would a publisher know? At the turn of the century, things were so bad that McGowan was forced into the Priory for his heroin problems, and Clark joined him to overcome her depression. I was properly suicidal, she says, and I found it difficult to be in there with him because I always had this kind of fear of judgment and criticism, and Shane was inviting it. They split, and this time, Clark didn't think they would ever get back together. It was a time of real despair for her, as she took stock of her life, single, overweight, in her words, unsuccessful. As a last-ditch attempt to save herself, she decided she would try to contact angels to see if they could guide her into making more positive decisions. She says they began to appear for her, not as winged people, but as particles of light or certain fragrances. These celestial beings would speak to her, challenge her, and help her understand how to move in the world. In 2007, she published Angel in Disguise, a wildly honest, occasionally hilarious and utterly unique self-help memoir. 
One conversation with angels involves them discussing why she has a desire to smoke crack with Pete Doherty. It should be silly, and in many ways it is, but it's also extremely open and charming, just like Clark herself. These days, angels are a big thing for Clark. From selling silk angel scarves to providing workshops for those who want to make their own connections with the spirit world. Does she think she might one day communicate with Shane? Oh, I am already, she says. He's already been helping with stuff today, even in a very practical way. Go on, I say. I had to do a lot of wrapping scarves, communicating with customers, all the admin stuff that I hadn't been able to do since the funeral. And so I said to him, Look, I'm really, really stressed about this. I need your help. I want you to make it go really smoothly. And it worked. I do believe that people can help you from beyond. Whether or not angels made it happen, Clark and McGowan simply weren't destined to be apart forever. They rekindled their relationship after the book was published and in 2018 they were married at a ceremony in Copenhagen. Was he on time for it, I wonder? Absolutely, yeah. Because by that stage he had changed very much. He calmed down and he began to do what I asked him to do. He gave up smoking, he gave up heroin. The only fight we ever had after the wedding was about him doing physio. McGowan had broken his pelvis after a fall in 2015. He really mellowed and our connection deepened. It's funny, she says, because she had spent years trying to change McGowan and yet when she looks back she realises that he was actually the one who changed her and definitely for the better. When they first met, she happily admits that she was selfish, snobby and obsessed with celebrities. As the band became more successful, she longed to hang out at glitzy parties with Elton John and Bono, but McGowan would sooner sit in a bar and chat to whoever staggered in with a tale to tell. And over the years, just from being around him, I melted. I began to feel the connection with people and the value of that. Was the overwhelming wave of affection that came after his death a surprise to her? I was really surprised, she says, but I think he would have been completely dumbfounded because we lived a very quiet life. We hardly ever went out. We spent most of our time at home watching TV. Since McGowan's death, there's been a gathering noise around making Fairy Tale of New York this year's Christmas number one. The song is being reissued on vinyl and Clark has gladly promoted the campaign, despite McGowan sometimes claiming not to care for it especially. I think he was just bored with people focusing on that one song, she says, because he was like, well, I've written so many other ones. With its tale of a couple airing their grievances on Christmas Eve before realising that their bumpy romance was always a shared journey, it is hard to hear it as anything other than incredibly prophetic about their own relationship. Would McGowan appreciate a chart topper now? I think he probably would. We've been talking for over an hour and Clark is still merrily regaling me with stories of McGowan. The love they shared is undeniable, but I feel as if I should let her go. Before I do, I ask if there's anything that she'd like to add. Just one thing she says. We're all going to lose people at some point. I'm just hopeful that people can take away the idea that you don't have to fall apart. 
that it's still possible to maintain your connection with them, even after they've gone. I'm sure I'm going to feel the loss at times, but I know that the connection I have to Shane will always be there. That was Victoria Mary Clark on her husband Shane McGowan. He gave up heroin and our connection deepened by Tim Jones. Read by Clara Hart. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back with the second half of this episode in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, to be frozen out by family, friends or online can feel as bad as physical pain. Anita Chowdhury speaks to those on the receiving end and those who meet it out. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Laura, a 43-year-old architect, had always had a tricky relationship with her younger sister, Carla. However, things hit a low point when Carla was setting up a new business and asked Laura to invest in it. She asked me for £10,000, I'm sure because she knew my husband had recently inherited a large sum of money, for various reasons, including the fact that I knew the online boutique she was launching was doomed to fail, I said no. Her reaction was explosive. She called me every name under the sun. She told me I was unsupportive and smug. After the storm came the big freeze. Laura hasn't spoken to her sister for three years. It's not like we don't see each other. She lives nearby, and we still attend some shared family events. I tried to talk to her, but she would look the other way when I tried to catch her eye. For a while, Laura says, it was all-consuming, trying to re-establish communication. Now, I just walk around her like an awkward piece of furniture. If we must speak, it's done through our kids, which can't be setting a good example. Psychotherapist Julie Murray says that, unlike other cold-shouldering behaviour such as ghosting, there is a lot of shame involved in the silent treatment. It's a sign that something has gone terribly wrong with the relationship, whether that's with a romantic partner, a friend, or a family member. If it happens to you, you can feel massively rejected, worthless, confused, and lonely. The closer you are to the person, the more painful it's going to feel, because you're more vulnerable. 
This has been the case for Vikram, aged 35, whose mother has been giving him the silent treatment on and off since he was a teenager. She is often interfering and judgmental when it comes to my life choices. The way she demonstrates her disapproval is to withdraw communication. When Vikram split up with his fiancée, a woman his family doted on, his mother didn't speak to him for six months. Instead, they communicated through his father. If it wasn't so painful, it would have been funny, he says. We'd be at the dinner table and she would say to my dad, ask Vic if he wants soup. Eventually, she came out of it, as she always does, until the next time. There have been many subsequent episodes of the silent treatment, such as when his mother found out from another family member that Vikram's new partner was pregnant. We had told three people, preferring to avoid all the fuss until after the three-month scan. It was so destabilising, being cut off by her, at a time when my partner and I really needed support. Kip Williams, Professor of Psychological Sciences at Purdue University, Indiana, has studied the effects of using the silent treatment for the past 40 years. He became fascinated after watching a documentary, The Silence, while he was a student. It concerns James Pelosi, a West Point cadet who was ostracised by his peers for cheating in an exam. Despite being exonerated, for 19 months he was forced to eat at a separate table live without roommates, and were spoken to only at official events. It was a gripping documentary. As a social psychologist, I studied the impact of people on other people, but no one had really studied the effects of ostracism being ignored and excluded. In these times of culture war, where some argue we live in a cancel culture, ostracism has never been more prevalent. Williams notes that whole nations can give each other the silent treatment, such as when some UN member states refuse to recognise other states. Williams says that nations respond to the silent treatment in much the same way as individuals. They usually seek ways to be heard, taking on the more antisocial role to be provocative and gain control. It plays out too in social groups where one member takes an unpopular view Covid denial or supporting Brexit, for example, and is frozen out by the others. Williams believes that being on the receiving end of silence is so distressing because it threatens all our human needs after the basics of food, shelter and safety have been met. This concept of a pyramid of needs was introduced in the 1950s by the psychologist Abraham Maslow who said the higher needs included the need to belong and have social connections, the need to feel good about yourself, and the need to feel that your existence is meaningful. In his own research, published in the journal Science in 2003, Williams and colleagues identified that when someone is ostracised, the same areas of the brain are triggered as when experiencing physical pain. They also conducted an experiment giving participants painkillers to see if feelings of rejection could be treated in the same way as physical agony and found that it could. This was backed up by MRI brain scans. If you get into a fight with someone, that's not great, but at least you are still connected. You are acknowledging each other, he says. You can demonstrate competence by winning the fight. Ostracism can be more distressing because it's taking away all of your needs. 
Unusually for human behaviour, deploying silence as a coping strategy isn't related to any particular personality trait, but is triggered by circumstances. We interviewed a great many people who have either given out the silent treatment for a chronically long period, or who have received it, says Williams. The motives were varied. Sometimes people do it, even if it's not really part of their repertoire. For example, we met a father whose son, out of the blue, said something so hurtful that he couldn't think of a retort. So he said nothing. He stopped responding altogether. He wouldn't have dinner with him or even look at him. He stopped acknowledging him. He saw his son deteriorate and still he couldn't stop because stopping would have been an admission that his behaviour was inappropriate. Instead, he kept dwelling on the initial hurtful comment to justify his behaviour. Eventually, very slowly, he found his way back to normal communication with his son. In worst-case scenarios, these situations can last a lifetime. We met one woman who had been given the silent treatment by her husband for 40 years. If the silent treatment becomes a long-standing pattern, you lose self-esteem and perspective. When asked why she stayed, this lady replied, At least I've got a roof over my head. For some people, resorting to silence is learned behaviour from their family. People who regularly resort to the silent treatment may be doing so because they don't feel safe expressing their emotions, says Murray, or they feel they might lose control once they start expressing themselves and their anger or frustration might boil over. They don't have a map for how to do it. There has been a lot of buzz about attachment theory lately, and Murray references it here. If a mother is emotionally well-regulated, that sets the basis for a secure attachment for the child, who is then likely to be better at regulating their emotions, be more aware of the emotional impact they're having on others around them, and better at repairing when things go wrong. Less securely attached people, the avoidant or anxious types, may feel so emotionally overwhelmed and unable to understand how they feel that a fight-or-flight response is triggered. Or, in this case, a freeze. When your threat system is activated, you shut down. An inability to handle conflict is often at play. Gail, an administrator in her 50s, describes her own behaviour as a very civilised way of being angry. She gave her neighbour the silent treatment on and off for stretches of up to six months. The day we moved in, our children, then five and twelve, got out of the car and started to run around in excitement. It's a terrace house and the driveways are tight. Out came our neighbour yelling about how she hoped we were going to control our children as she didn't want them on her driveway. Then she complained when I hammered a nail into our side of the fence to put up a hanging basket, saying, we were ruining the structure. It was the last straw. I'm afraid I use silence in situations like this because I hate conflict. I used to check that she wasn't in her front garden before I came out of the front door. Ridiculous, I know. Then she complained when we got a trampoline, saying the kids could see into her garden when they bounced. I retaliated with another long spell of silence. In between times, she would phone to ask for our help with her computer and we obliged. 
But then she complained that our cats were walking along her fence, ruining her trellis, and we had to go back to silence again. I would see her in the street and look the other way. Over time, Gail says, the silences became fewer and fewer, and they got to know their neighbour, who, they realised, had grown up in a life of privilege and was not used to living in a small terrace house. When we finally told her we were moving, I think I saw a tear in her eye. We still exchange Christmas cards. There are things you can do if you are on the receiving end of the silent treatment. Psychologist Sarah Rosentula, author of How to Have Meaningful Conversations, suggests an exercise she calls the RAN process, which stands for Resent, Appreciate and Need. First, you ask yourself what you resent about the other person or situation. Get it all down on paper and don't hold back, be totally honest. Then write down what you appreciate about the other person. That might be challenging and annoying, but stay with it. And finally, write down what you need from the person or situation. It might be as simple as, what I really need is an apology. If you work through all that, you'll find yourself in a much less reactive place and you may be able to get out of the trap of silence and have a productive conversation with them. Digital silent treatment is an area Rosentula sees a lot of now, such as deliberately not liking someone's celebratory post on social media out of jealousy. Psychological data suggests that being ignored is more hurtful than a negative comment, she says. Digital silent treatment is prevalent now, maybe because it's easy to do, and people are feeling very disempowered and struggling with their own lives. Seeing other people seemingly having an easier time of it can be triggering. Whether online or offline, what can you do if you are the victim of someone's deep freeze? The typical response is to try and make yourself more likeable and more acceptable in the eyes of the person who is doing this to you, says Williams. That can cause you to bend and change your behaviour and values to please them, which isn't helpful. Or you might be triggered to lash out at them, or be provocative to force them to acknowledge you. We interviewed one woman who threw a marble ashtray at her husband just to get a reaction. There are some less drastic ways of breaking the deadlock, depending on the severity of the situation. People often don't realise the impact of their actions, so you might start by telling them their behaviour is making you feel distressed and lonely, suggests Murray. You could also try to find out what's going on for the other person on an emotional level. At the lighter end of the silent treatment spectrum is the sulker. We all know people who will seethe in a corner for an hour or so, sighing loudly, and, in case we hadn't noticed, announcing, I'm not talking to you. The sulker often wishes for other people to understand them, yet does nothing to help themselves, says Murray. It's like when you're a baby, and your parents magically give you everything you need without you asking. With sulkers, there's an unconscious wish to experience that from others. Full-blown silent treatment between romantic partners can be a lot more difficult to navigate. Murray advocates taking a step back and agreeing a time to reconnect. You might say, things seem quite difficult just now, 
Let's come back in half an hour or tomorrow and we can maybe talk about what's going on. It's important to set an end point so that the silence doesn't expand into days, even weeks. However, she sounds a note of caution. If there's a pattern of this, particularly with a spouse, if silence is used as a form of manipulation and control, then that is abusive and therefore concerning. You need to get help sooner rather than later. That was The Silent Treatment. One woman was ostracised by her husband for 40 years by Anita Chowdhury. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about The Guardian and Observer's annual charity appeal. This year, we're asking for your support to help refugees and asylum seekers rebuild their lives in safety. We're partnering with Refugee Council, Refugees at Home and NACOM to provide asylum seekers and refugees with practical support, vital accommodation and a safety net against homelessness and destitution. If you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Maybe even leave us a nice review. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. This week's articles are read by Colleen Prendergast and Clara Hart and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.